So Matthew chapter 12, reading verses 1 to 21, and then skipping over to 38 to 45. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some ears of corn and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Well, haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. And we skip over to verse 38. <laughs> then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation Ask for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Such is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us, speak to us, lead us, encourage us, strengthen us, renew us, rebuke us, train us in everything we ask that you might uh, help us to understand and keep me from error, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have an outline, I think. Is that right? You have an outline. It's the scariest outline I've ever produced. I uh, looked at it this morning and I thought, my goodness, what have I done? So uh, if you are scared by that, sorry about that. Uh, it is overly detailed, but uh, we, I have bitten off more than I can chew, so hopefully I won't choke you. Um, something greater is here, is Matthew 12, and it's a long chapter, and I'm moving quite quickly through it. We've seen that Jesus, Matthew, is really concerned to tell us that the Messiah is here, the servant of, a, of Isaiah 53 is working, that the last days are here, that apocalyptic tone that Matthew has wanted that to bring, the revealing of what God sees and is doing and how the world works and particularly how he's working in his son. The kingdom is at hand and it's an urgent mission and message to be heard by the people of Israel, the land that Jesus speaks to. And Christ is the one who is bringing and proclaiming that kingdom. He's confronted firstly in the innocent condemned Chapter 12, verse 1 to 8, by the Pharisees, the disciples are hungry, they need, they need to eat, and so they pick grain and eat it. There's a problem. It's the Sabbath, and the Pharisees in verse 2 don't like that. Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus answers by pointing to David from 1 Samuel chapter 21. 
David ate consecrated bread for goodness sake. Do you know what consecrated bread is? It's bread that sort of was used on the altar. My goodness, you're not meant to do that. Jesus says David did it and he was fine. He was okay. It was right for him to do. What about each Sunday, each Saturday? People say to me, Keith, you're working on the Sabbath. I thought we were meant to rest. And usually they're saying if you just be quiet, we'd all have a much better time. Jesus points to the fact that each Sabbath the priests work. They don't rest. They're okay. Jesus then quotes um, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. It's something he asked them back in chapter 9, verse 13. He said to the Pharisees, go and learn. Go and learn what Hosea 6, 6 means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus says, if you'd known what these words mean, you wouldn't condemn the innocent. That's what's happening here. The Pharisees are condemning the innocent, and the innocent are his disciples. They don't know mercy. It highlights the fact that the Pharisees, as we knew, they're anti-Jesus. They're not on board with what is happening. But something more shocking is then given to them in verse 6. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. The temple with Jerusalem, the temple was the symbol of God's presence with them. They knew that God was with them because his temple was here. It's the reason why everyone wants to, some people want to rebuild the temple. Jesus says something greater is here. Now, there's only one thing greater than the temple, isn't there? If you've got the temple that symbolizes God's presence, and Jesus says something greater than the temple is here, what is he saying? He's saying God himself is here. He's saying, I am God. People always asking me, saying Jesus never claimed to be God. I don't know why they don't just read the Bible. It's just right there all the time. Here it is. Here's one Explicit reference to it. God himself is here in the person of his son, the Messiah, the son of David. He calls himself, verse 8, he takes that Daniel reference, he calls him the son of man. And what does he say in verse 8? The son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's God. What was the Sabbath? It was created for rest. Six days of creation, six, isn't it? Six, Bill, six, 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 good. Six days of creation, and on the seventh, he rested. And in his rest sat all of creation, in his love, his care, and his eternal provision. That's the picture in Genesis. Jesus is saying he is Lord of this rest, this eternal provision of love and care. That is an enormous claim. I am the God who brings rest. 
And if your jaw hasn't dropped, it's because you're used to it. What an enormous claim that is. The legalists condemns the immoral, but the one who learns about mercy hears the cry of the Lord of the Sabbath. Just like chapter 5, verse 7, the blind man said to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And there you see it, it's in action in verses 9 to 15, which is our second point. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus is in the synagogue and, he's asked, and he asks a question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Of course, the answer from the legalist, as we know, will be no. They can't do anything. You can't pick fruit. You can't do anything. Is it lawful to heal? Answer we expect, no. But we know that the answer who understands, the answer that should be given from those who understands mercy, the answer will be yes. Jesus fires back at them. Verse 11. If any of you has sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Who wouldn't? Sheep are valuable, aren't they? Anyone ever raised sheep? She shorn sheep. Anyone's milk sheep? That would be quite difficult. Rounded up sheep. I've counted sheep at night. That's about all I've done. They're valuable. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Because he knows, as he says this to them, they would do that. They get the sheep and save it. It is lawful, Jesus says, therefore, to do good on the Sabbath. And then he quickly turns to the man in verse 13 and says, stretch out your hand. And he stretches it out and it's completely restored. How should they respond? How does the person of mercy respond? It's not how the Pharisees respond. Verse 14, they went out and plotted how to kill Jesus. The tragedy of this is clear. The danger has been signalled. We've known the clashes and Matthew has pointed to them coming and now it is particularly named. Jesus' question shows he knows their reaction. He knows he's here. Jesus is here to bring rest, to put creation back in order, to solve the problems of the outstretched hand, to fix that, to fix the things that are broken. That's what it means to sit in God's eternal rest and care. But the Pharisees seek chaos. Jesus, the Son of Man, that term from verse 8, takes us back to Daniel chapter 7 in the Bible. And in Daniel chapter 7, just before the Son of Man comes to the Father to receive the kingdom, to the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom, Verses 1 to 12 talk about all the things that rage in our world. The instruments of human power, the beasts that wreck our world and wreck creation. 
and bring chaos. The Pharisees align themselves with that human power and they do so because it's about destruction and chaos and they plot to kill the man who brings rest, Jesus. They are captured by that evil and they plot to kill him. Jesus withdraws, verse 15, and we are then pointed to the fact that he is the servant from verses 15b to 21. He quotes, Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. Jesus keeps doing uh, mercy. See that in verse 15b? Many followed him and he healed all their sick. He then warns them not to tell in verse 16, 16 who he was. And Matthew, we've been wondering, why does Jesus do this? Every time he heals someone, he says, don't tell anyone. Matthew tells us it's from Isaiah chapter 42, particularly verse 19 and 20. He will not quarrel or cry out nor no one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory and in his name the nations will put their hope. He will do this gently and quietly, this work, till he leads justice to victory. And if we jump to the end of Matthew, to chapter 28, it's there where Jesus will say, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. This authority comes when Jesus defeats all the powers of this world at the cross. And in Daniel chapter 12, the resurrection age has begun in Jesus as he rises from the dead. Paul will call him in 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits of those who are raised from the dead. What is happening here, Matthew is saying, is truly great and wonderful for the whole of the human race. So in his name, the nations will put their hope. Jesus warns the kingdom is imminent, so receive it. Jesus goes on in verses 22 to 32 to heal a demon-possessed man. The man is blind and mute, and people are astonished that he can do this. Notice this is numerous times now that we meet people who are astonished, and we wonder what they do with that astonishment. They ask, could this be the son of David? That means, could this be the Messiah? Matthew's been telling us he is. The Pharisees, though, as they see this happening, see something very different indeed. Indeed, instead, they see Jesus is in league with the devil, which is not the first time they've said this. They have not learned mercy, nor have they changed their tune on this assessment. 
Jesus challenges it and said, look, it doesn't make sense, verses 25 to 27. How can a kingdom, how can the devil be divided against himself? A kingdom can't stand if it's divided against itself. It doesn't make sense. To his opponents, you've been doing it, he says in verse 21. Who are that? Your people you've got. Do the same things. Are they the devil's servants? knowing that they'll answer no. So he says in verse 28, if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Sometimes this verse is used to say that the kingdom was present in Jesus' ministry. I think it's better understood that Jesus is saying the kingdom is near because in Daniel, because Matthew has been drawing very heavily on Daniel chapter 7 through to 12. In Daniel, the kingdom comes when the kingdom replaces all the ungodly powers. Those powers of the beasts that raise, when the God's kingdom come, it replaces them. Here, that's still in play. The Son of Man receives that kingdom and then shares it with, his, with God's people. That's a radical change. It's a radical new thing that Daniel points to. God's kingdom coming has come. This kingdom is given to the Son of Man who operates by the Spirit of God. And so Jesus is saying if the servant of the Lord is operating in Israel, then his ministry is preparation for that kingdom. It's imminent, it has come upon you, and you need to respond. All people, all nations and languages will come, says Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. And that's why when we get to Matthew 28, when the kingdom has come and all Jesus says all authority has been given to me, that is why the world, the word is to go to all the nations, to every tribe, every nation. Jesus uses a parable to reinforce this in verse 29. It's often known as the parable of the strong man. The binding of the evil one is necessary for the captives to be released. And this is happening in what Jesus is doing amongst them, his ministry. They're to receive Jesus' ministry, and he warns them that they must do that. If they don't, they will be found wanting. It's the time of the harvest, and Jesus is the one who brings forgiveness. He told us that back in chapter 9, verse 6. If they're not on his side, they will miss out. And to not be on Jesus' side in verse 31 is the unforgivable sin. We know that when Jesus started, remember back in chapter 3, verse 17, at his baptism, the Spirit was poured out upon him. As he's moved around and done his ministry, he's been able to do that because God's Spirit is with him. To call him a servant of the devil, Beelzebub, 
is terribly serious and it means that they are very likely in danger of missing forgiveness which Jesus brings altogether. He casts that warning out to the generations in verses 33 to 37 and he does it by a series of metaphors. He's speaking, <clears throat> Israel's leaders had spoken against him and their careless words will condemn them. I uh, had a, did anyone ever know Stan who did the gardens at Springwood Presbyterian Church? I know Bill did very well and Phil did too. Anyone else know anyone? Did you ever know Stan who used to do the gardens at Springwood Presby Church? Did you ever run into him? Did you ever see him working? No? Uh, Stan, uh, Stan was an amazing man. I remember sitting over there and he'd, say, he'd come to me and say, Keith, I'd, I'd just like to pull out this tree. Is that okay? And I'd say, Stan, pull out a tree. He sure, I'd be worrying, could he do such a thing? You know, he was an 84-year-old man asking me, can he pull this tree out? And I'm thinking, my goodness gracious me. He said, we need to pull it out because it doesn't produce any fruit and it doesn't flower. In Stan's mind, if the thing didn't produce fruit or it didn't flower, it was useless. <laughs> Get rid of it and put something in place that did one of those two things. So Stan made the place look pretty wonderful. He had that saying, though, produce fruit or rip it out. Produce flour or you go. Jesus says in verse 33 something very similar to Stan. Bad fruit produce, produce bad tree, sorry, bad fruit trees produce bad fruit. They're not good for anything. Jesus also says the, the leaders are brood of vipers. Why does he say that? Because out of their heart, verses 34 to 35, comes the evil that they have in it. It's not good for this generation. It's not going to be good for these leaders. Indeed, they ask for a sign. And Jesus says only the evil generation asks for a sign in verses 38 to 45. It's the first time we've heard of the language of sign and it's something we're going to get a few more times in Matthew's gospel from now on. Jesus says a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. Jesus is moving, healing, casting out demons. He's raised people from the dead. He's doing this amongst them. And after doing this, they say, give us a sign. It's ridiculous. And Jesus treats it as such. The cities of Galilee we saw in Matthew 11, despite what had been done amongst them, didn't repent. And so Jesus says, no sign is going to be given to you. You can't see the signs already. No sign is going to be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah, which is Jesus' death and resurrection. But by that time, it'll be too late because the Messiah is in their midst and this generation has had enough evidence. Respond. How did they receive this evidence? They received it as evidence as the devil 
at work. And so Jesus says, you know, when Jonah preached to a bunch of Assyrians in Nineveh, they repented. You know, the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, 1 Kings 10, she came to see Solomon because God was here in his wisdom and his presence. They will stand and say, mate, what are you doing? All this was done amongst you and you missed it. What were you doing? Jesus worries for them and talks about the return of the unclean spirit in 45b. It's very disconcerting, this uh, reading for this generation. He pitches, Jesus pitches the nation as a man who has had an unclean spirit cast out of him, cast out by the work of God's Messiah. But having rejected God's Messiah, what will come in its place? Jesus' ministry confronted the unclean spirit of demons, death, disease, untold suffering and chaos. If they reject that kingdom, what will come after it? Zechariah 13 verse 1 spoke of a day when a fountain would be opened and it would cleanse the land of impurity and sin. This generation is rejecting that forgiveness. Jesus says, only something worse will come. But hope is given to us at the end when he says that family are all those who do the will of God. In verses 46 to 50, Jesus' family comes and people say, your family's here. Jesus says, if you, anyone who does the will of God is my family. If they don't reject Jesus, they will be his family. There is a remnant within Israel. And chapter 13 will show how that remnant will be separated from just everyone. We've been at a lot of things today, and boys have been tiring and long. Sorry about that. What we can know is that all those who come to Jesus are his. We are his family. We often call each other brothers and sisters, family. Jesus calls us brother, sister, family. We have recognised his great work of love for us. He has cleansed us from sin. He came at the cross to break the power of sin in our lives to break the hold of sin and death and release us into the freedom and the rest and care of his love. His glorification at the cross means we too are glorified in him. His exaltation as he rose from the dead and received the kingdom at the right hand, sits at the right hand of the Father, is given to us because of his love. We, his family, call on him because we are loved. He has given us his spirit 
the spirit that changed us and changing us to be more like his love, to know mercy and not sacrifice, to speak of his love, to live it out until he returns again. It's an encouraging place to think that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus, told us we have not seen, but yet we have seen. We did not hear, but boy have we heard. God has given us his spirit that we might know him and walk in his ways. Let's do that in glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father, uh, we thank you. We want to speak of your love. We're thankful that you have placed in our hearts uh, your spirit who has taught us to love one another as you loved us. We thank you that you've called us to be your people. Help us to walk in your ways. Help us to be obedient in that, to do your will, to speak, to live, and look forward to the time when you come again, when your kingdom will fully be consummated and we will be with you and you will be our God. New heavens, new earth, at a time which we will never know until it happens. Father, we thank you that all these things are in your good hands. We thank you that we rest in your loving care. And we thank you that we are your people together because of Christ's love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, we've got a last song together called There.